da. Yes, we have lived off. Wonder how you are this morning. Yeah, just saying to somebody earlier, either, either people knew I was preaching or holidays of. I confess I am tired. Uh, many of you will know it's been a fascinating time since retirement, uh, going back down south regularly to see parents, then my father dying in March and all tied up with that, then my mother breaking her pelvis three weeks ago and went down again to see Betty's mother and then my mother in what is now a care home which she's in, hallelujah, praise the Lord, my brother sorted that out, that's fantastic, and she's happy, that's even more fantastic. And um, as long as, as long as she dies within the next seven months, it can be afforded as well. Um, <laughs> and of course, one of the, one of the oddities is, all she wants to do is go to heaven. You know, she says, I don't know what God's playing at. You know, I just, just want to go to heaven. Yeah. So then after seeing my mother there, we went back to Betty's mother. Then yesterday we went down to see some friends in East Grinstead and then up to a joint 70th birthday party in uh, Wallington in South London. Then left there at about quarter past four yesterday afternoon and got home at half past ten last night. So I'm tired. How are you? It's all relevant to this because there are times in life, times in life when just life gets a little bit However, I do have one great gratitude, and that is that when I was asked to preach this morning and next Sunday, I was given Psalm 39 and Psalm 40. I wasn't given Psalm 38, which Paul dealt with last week. <laughs> Bless him. That was fantastic. One other thing before I read Psalm 39, we were asked if we could possibly host one of the open houses during the uh, uh, holiday time, and we said, yes, no problem at all but you'll all have to come to Tennessee uh, to the bungalow we'll have there. Now, I hasten to add, um, you're still very welcome, but if you could let us know if you're coming, uh, it would be good. All right. Psalm, Psalm 39. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath, breath. The span of my years as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. 
I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. That's cheered you up, hasn't it? Um, fascinating. I, I, the Psalms, as you know, are astonishing. Just astonishing in the complexity of human emotions they deal with. What fascinates me even more is that all of them, or nearly all of them, and including this one, would have been used within the, uh, the normal pattern of Jewish worship. You can imagine, can't you, the band coming up here one morning and leading us in a song. Hmm. Save me from my transgressions. Oh, okay, we can do that. Remove your scourge from me. Uh, look away from me that I may enjoy life before I depart and am no more. And I think what, we've, uh, what it reminds us of is this, that worship is a much bigger thing than what we experience on a Sunday. Every aspect of our lives is an aspect of worship for those who love the Lord or is meant to be. The anguish of our heart, the puzzlement of our mind, uh, the grief we can experience, we all are meant to be bringing that to God as part of the worship experience. So he is brought into our experiences, but more than that, we are bringing those things to him in a very honest way. Christians are not infrequently, remarkably dishonest when they worship and when they come to prayer meetings. What they really want to say is, Lord, what are you playing at? Like my mother did. And what in reality we say is, Lord, we know you do all things well, but just at the moment I'm slightly puzzled by it. Uh, we don't allow how we're really feeling to emerge, and yet we ought. God can cope with that. Because he knows anyway. He knows anyway. One of the interesting things with my mother's illness, although she is still mentally incredibly sharp at 96, there are telltale signs of slight dementia in that some of the inhibiting factors which stopped us saying inappropriate things have just begun to go a little bit. So she's just a little bit more critical of people than she would have been in the past. And when she was still in the hospital, my brother and I were there and she was saying, tell Jean to come in, that's my sister, or tell Jean to come in as well. And we said, no, you're only allowed two by the bed. And she went, ooh. Said, and you could have come earlier. And we said, no, you, you, we weren't allowed in until then. So I leant across my brother, because he was nearest to her, and she's very deaf, and said, tell her we were brought up to keep the rules. So my brother leant forward and said, we were brought up to keep the rules. And my mother said, without batting an eyelid, the Pharisees kept the rules, and it didn't do them any good, did it? <laughs> so there you go. <clears throat> All... This is part of where I am in worship. We don't put the struggles, and, the, and there are struggles. I have huge concerns for my, for my mother, massive concerns for her. We don't put them outside the door and close the door and say, now we worship God, and then we go out and pick them up again. We bring it all to God. And this is what the, the, the book of Psalms tell us. I have no idea who Jeduthun was to whom, to whom this psalm is dedicated for Jeduthun, a psalm of David, for the director of music. So it was obviously meant to be put to music. There's a challenge. Yeah. Of course, this side of the cross 
you know, Jesus has died, has risen. Our worship obviously is different. We declare the praises of God. We declare the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. We experience the, I pray we experience the immediacy and power of the Holy Spirit. And, and everything is transformed. But that doesn't mean we have to go about with a beatific smile pretending. It really doesn't. Only the writer himself knew what he was really getting at in this psalm. So that actually gives a preacher quite a bit of license. Because I can say the writer knew, I'm just guessing. But I think guessing intelligently about some of the things that are behind here. So, so let's work out. It's in scripture for a purpose. Let's work out what we can learn from this psalm. The writer seemed to have two problems that I can perceive. First of all, it seems that he is tortured in his spirit by the activities of the wicked. So much so that he resolves to stop saying anything at all, good or bad, presumably because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. He doesn't want his feelings of frustration to, to burst out on other people. Uh, it's hard to know where to start, he's thinking. That's what verses 1 to 3 of this are all about, really. But it also seems he was suffering from some kind of illness, some kind of a physical problem from verse 10 that he, he interprets as God disciplining him. Does that ring any bells with you? Possibly at all? Within the last 60 years, we have, as a nation, allowed the wholesale killing, wholesale killing of the unborn as a convenience. We've lost sight of God's purpose for sex and legalized and then celebrated what the Bible condemns. We've gone down an utterly baseless transgender agenda, a social experiment that will devastate coming generations. We've allowed the exploitation of the poor through unrestrained greed and the promotion of gambling. And we've loosened from the moorings of any objective standard of right and wrong, leaving millions of people in confusion and hopelessness. Huge sways of the Christian church have bought into different aspects of this blindness so that those who dare to object are ridiculed, bullied, and sometimes persecuted. I could go on. Do you get angry about that at all? Possibly? I do. And I don't do anger. I really don't. I can remember twice in my whole life losing my temper. Just don't do it. But something is not right. But how do you give expression to that anger without, first of all, feeling, uh, giving the impression that you are superior to everybody else? Or without being ridiculed and made to look like a total idiot? How do you do all those things? And of course the answer is we tend to opt for the easy option that is not say anything at all. It's exactly what the psalmist was feeling. I, I, I just, I'll just keep my mouth shut, then I won't get into trouble. Yeah? Do you ever feel like that? And then, of course, there's the, the astonishing, brainless pursuit of pleasure, which is the kind of injection which keeps our society from rebelling against everything that's going on. You know, as long as, as long as the football stadiums can be filled and as long as the television screens can be full of stuff which the world takes so seriously, and as you know, I love my sport, but it is, it is pointless, okay? It isn't actually important. I've got my season tickets at St. James's Park and I, I, I love Newcastle United and I'll support them, but it doesn't matter. Not in terms of what's going on in the world and God's purposes through all eternity. But we, our society sells to the masses this pleasure thing 
as long as you're getting your, your, your thrill, as, as, as long as something is inoculating you from the empty devastation of what our society is becoming. So we bite our tongue. We shut our mouths. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to come across as, as know-it-all reactionaries. And the devil comes along, and on top of all that, he says, you know that illness you've got? You know that problem? You know your ingrowing toenail or your bunion or something far, far, far worse? Well, you must have done something bad because God's disciplining you through it. And we come up with all sorts of ridiculous things like, well, you know, it's just the cross I have to bear. Firstly, a cross is always voluntary. Okay, so if you're ill, unless you've chosen to be ill, okay, it can't be the cross you have to bear. Okay, it's part of the fall that we all get sick. I understand that. But we also should be actively claiming the healing power of God in our lives and walking in a far greater degree of health than we do. There are no simple answers to it. But either we bring worship into that as well, or we pretend that God can't deal with that and keep it out there. And so many Christians have been very poorly taught and are easily at the, at the disposal of Satan's lies. So that's, that's the problem. Those are the two, two issues, yeah? And, and they're relevant. They're relevant to us today, manifestly so. But let, let's now think about the fire, the fire that burns. Hmm. It is a strange thing, really. If you resolve to bite your tongue and say, I won't say anything because I can't do anything, it's beyond my control, the thing you must not do is go deeper into prayer. Because the deeper you go into prayer, the more you know you can't keep quiet. That's the point. As the psalmist meditates on God, a fire begins to burn within him. And the closer he gets to God, the more he senses God's anger and God's annoyance at what's going on in the world. And so eventually, 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 he speaks. When I was a teenager, I was a very introverted child and teenager, and introversion is still my normal state, if you like. But I wouldn't say anything to anybody, I wouldn't enter into discussions about things until it boiled up and boiled up and boiled up and boiled up within me. And then all of a sudden it would come out as a torrent of intolerance. And people would say, God's taught me a better way. But I think sometimes we forget that we are meant to burn with the fire and passion of God. That we're not meant to walk through this life looking at the evils of this life and say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Lord, please sort it out. God wants us to share his heart. When we invest time with God, he stirs a holy fire within us. He, he pours his spirit afresh into our lives and, and we see things as they really are. God isn't looking for an orator, particularly. He isn't looking for a genius. He's looking for ordinary people like you and me to be so captivated by his anger, so captivated by his fire that it burns through us. 
So we burn with, yes, his anger and with his truth, but also with his love. Before the psalmist speaks out to the issues, he addresses God. And he comes to real perspective. What's real perspective? Well, despite my mother's attempt to prove it otherwise, the real perspective is that life is fleeting. <laughs> Do you ever, maybe I'm odd this way, I, I quite like going around graveyards. Um, I, I quite like reading gravestones. And, uh, a very odd thing happened. We went to the Essex town of, uh, is it Essex or Suffolk? Dedham. Spelled D-E-D-H-A-M. I, I was just slightly amused how many people died under the age of 30 that are buried in that churchyard. Just astonishing. Then, of course, every so often, if you get to the right churchyard at the right time, you'll find a, a gravestone or even a tombstone or a tomb dedicated to a very famous person. And the oddity is, most of those people I'd never heard of, but they were famous then, some you've heard of. Some go down in history a bit longer, a bit longer, a bit longer. But guess what? In the end, everybody's forgotten. Everybody. I'm into family trees. I, I like to know about my ancestors and all that sort of stuff. And I, we try and research it. We've hit dead ends at the moment, but we'd like to go further. Sorry, dead ends. Never mind. We'd like to go further back just because I like to know where I come from and all that sort of stuff. But let's not fool ourselves. When we breathe our last, our family and loved ones will be sad and they'll miss us and they'll talk about us and then the next generation will talk about the people who talked about you and the next generation might research you on the family tree. That's it. That's life, people. Even the most famous ones, the ones that achieve something, at the end of the day, it counts for nothing at all. Wealth and influence are temporary and passing. You know the old story, I heard it recently again, of the, the, the funeral cortege of a millionaire who, who died and was passing by, and one person said to another person, how much did he leave? And the other person said, all of it. You know? We do. And the frantic, so important activities that fill our lives now very often are just mirages of pointlessness which will count for nothing in eternity, have no eternal significance except perhaps in some cases that they might bring people to judgment. Now that brings two thoughts to my mind. In trying to live for God today, we have to recognize this fleetingness and not be too worried about ourselves. You know, we take ourselves so seriously. Uh, Gloria Gaither, who's a songwriter, she, she came out with a great phrase, the trouble with most Christians is they take themselves too seriously and they don't take God seriously enough. And I think that fits. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6? Let me read it to you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. 
Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Bad translation, the old translation is mammon. It's talking about the whole money gain wealth principle on which most of society is based. You can't serve them both. Therefore, Jesus says, are you listening, people? You've heard it before. Word from, from the Lord here. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, not, are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The other thing I think we must do in, in the light of what the psalmist is saying is we need to try and prick the foolish bubble in which others live and confront them with the eternal consequences of their choices. Part of the sadness of a generation in which huge swathes of Christians and huge, huge numbers of churches have ceased to certainly teach the doctrine of hell and in many cases believe in the doctrine of hell Part of the sadness of that is we have a whole generation growing up believing that their choices don't have eternal consequences. And they do. But we need to confront people with those choices with the gospel of grace, with the good news. It isn't hopeless. Jesus has done something about it. He has stepped into the breach. He has provided the way through the cross of Jesus Christ for all to come if they would, in repentance and faith, for all to know forgiveness, to all to for all to have their feet placed on the rock, which is Jesus, for all to begin to live lives of eternal consequence rather than emptiness. The fame of this world, even when it lasts a few hundred years, which is rare, counts for absolutely nothing in the next. Nothing at all. The final thing from this psalm, I just want to ask you a question. The psalmist, again, you love the honesty when he says, Hear my prayer, Lord, listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. The question I ask you is this Do you really want God to look away? I think the writer's saying to God, if you're not going to do anything about all this stuff, then please let me off the hook so that I can enjoy what I've got without feeling responsible. Let me go and play golf. Let me enjoy my garden. Let me socialize with a few friends. Let me never put the news on or do anything which interrupts my little cocoon of safety. Let me escape, God, so that I don't have to face these realities. 
until I, until I die. Let me coast home, God. Let me coast home. Do you? Is that what you want God to do for you? Well, the New Testament, hallelujah, the New Testament reminds us that through the cross we are totally forgiven. Through the cross we have a reason to live and a reason for which to die. And we have a God who will not leave us or forsake us, who is, will always be there and will help us face every difficulty and every trial. Hallelujah, we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he would not leave us as orphans, but he would come to us. And I've said this before preaching here, but I'll keep saying it until the penny drops. Satan's cleverest ploy has been to make many Christians blind to or nervous of the Holy Spirit. And yeah, I know there have been excesses and all sorts of weird and wonderful things done and, and people carried things to ridiculous levels within the flesh. But the devil only bothers to counterfeit, or only bothers to stir up those things to put Christians off if there's something worth having in the first place. The Holy Spirit longs to fill us again and again and again. He is the Spirit of Jesus, and we are called to live Spirit-filled lives, to daily, more than daily, ask, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. Lord, I need you. I need your strength. I need your perspective. He is the one who empowers. He is the one who guides. He is the one who brings into all truth. He is the one who gives spiritual gifts to, the, to believers that bear little resemblance to what we usually call spiritual gifts, because spiritual gifts are far removed from natural human talents. They can enhance them, but we don't do any justice to God by pretending they're the same thing. The Holy Spirit banishes our fears. The Holy Spirit brings boldness and gives words to say we wouldn't have thought possible. Jesus said to his disciples, when, you, when you're facing trial, don't worry in advance what you're going to say. The, the, my spirit will give you the words to say. Wow. In our world, we can interpret that as if you're suddenly encouraged to go and share your faith with somebody, you're going, but I don't know what to say. Don't, don't panic. Just open your mouth. You'll be amazed what God puts there. So will everybody else, but that's beside the point. We need to seek more and more and more and more of God. Not, Lord, turn your face away and let me coast. But God, take me, take me deeper so that the kingdom you have placed me in, the eternal kingdom of your son, I understand as my dwelling place day by day. That I understand I'm living in that place of victory and not defeat. And that even the weakest Christian at their weakest moment has total authority over Satan. Did you know that? We're called to wait on him. More of that next week. All right, Psalm 40. More of waiting on God next week. For now... Let's understand that the feelings of helplessness and fear and anger and so on and so on have long gripped God's people and still do. At least they do me from time to time. And we must not pretend we must be honest. When I was uh, a teenager in one of my intolerant outbursts that I was describing earlier, we were having a discussion about selling, I was in the Salvation Army in those days, uh, selling Salvation Army uh, war cries in the pubs. And I was, I was scandalized that the Salvation Army officer did nearly all of that. Nobody helped them. I was 14 at the time and far too young to be involved. And I said, somebody should be doing something about this. And my mother, bless her, on my 16th birthday, first Friday night after my 16th birthday, she said, right, uniform on, off you go. 
And for two years, every Friday night, I was selling war cries and the like in the pubs of Luton. Yeah. And every week, without fail, I'd think, oh, maybe my glands are up. <laughs> you know, maybe. Oh. And every week, without fail, I ended up going and finding God there. Astonishingly. Talking to a guy who had bandages around his wrist and around his neck. He said, I was 16. He said, I, I tried to kill myself yesterday. I'm just trying to bolster the courage to finish the job. What have you got to say to me? A little bit later, a man said, I, I, was, I was just like you. He wasn't drunk. He was just a bit tipsy. I was just like you, he said, but not anymore. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was Pentecostal. Then my wife and children were killed at a van. And I haven't been able to look at God ever since. And to spend an hour as a teenager talking to that man. Astonishing. Astonishing. Look, if an introverted 16-17-year-old can do these things because God enables them, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We need to be where people are. We need to be where the pain is. We need to be engaged with the injustices and the horrors of our society and have the courage to speak. Because there's a dying world out there and people are heading to a lost eternity and we have the treasure of the kingdom here. We should surround ourselves with God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and draw strength from him and strength from being together. I'm nearly done. Regardless of age or circumstance, God is not calling you to disengage and to coast. But he's calling us all to turn to the battlefront in prayer and in faith. While I was away, I was reading, and uh, the book I was reading just reminded me about the story of Hannah when she was praying because she couldn't have a child. And she uh, went to, the, to Shiloh. And she'd been many times before, but it just got too much for her, and she went to the... Uh, to, to where the tabernacle was there and she poured out her heart to God pleading for a child and promised that she'd give the child back to God and Eli who's meant to be the sensitive priest thought she was drunk now what got hold of me in this reading was how God answered her prayer because it was from the heart and because it was passionate and because she allowed the pain to be experienced but also through that prayer God answered a far bigger one a nation that had been lost, had, had lost its way completely, was, a, was morally appalling. So that Eli and his two sons were the priests, and they were probably the well, the two sons were probably the most immoral people in the kingdom. A nation was saved through that son that she prayed for with all the passion. How many doors get opened when we allow the heart we have to be expressed before God? God, please. Please, please, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the book of Psalms, for all the stuff we understand and all the stuff we don't, and there's plenty of that. But this morning, I simply pray that you'd help us be honest with you, but to bring that honesty to you and not go away and hide. And that you would start such a fire in our lives. That lives around and indeed whole communities are transformed simply through what we bring.
In Jesus' name, amen.